We are continuing our study in the book of Romans. We are right in the middle of chapter 7, really delving into the idea of sanctification. What does the life of a believer look like? Is it a cakewalk or is it a war zone? It's more like a war zone as we are finding out. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13 through verse 20. The inerrant, authoritative word of God reads as follows. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do everything I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness in revealing the truths of your word this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit gives us understanding of the goodness of your law and the depravity of our sin that dwells in us and seems not to go away. Lord Jesus, the demands of the law have been met fully and exhaustively in your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for that. May we look to that very hope this morning as we dive into your holy word. It is in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon I've labeled, Can the Law Deliver? Can the Law Deliver? This is the law of God, specifically the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Can they deliver? But deliver what? We'll come back to that. Following the train of thought of Paul here in Romans 7, he's analyzing God's moral law and sin. Paul has taught us that the law puts the bar so high that it condemns every human being. So then, what should we think and believe about the law? We may have thought at some point that the law is our friend. As we have seen before in the last few weeks. The law shows us who we are, but it crushes us. It is not our friend. And neither is sin, right? If we have sin as our master, we'll be enslaved to sin. So what now? As we think about that today, we consider then 
Can the law deliver? Coming back to that question, deliver what? Can it deliver holiness? Can you memorize the Ten Commandments? Can you study the Ten Commandments? And therefore, become morally righteous? Is that possible? Paul has told us, no. Can the law then deliver the power to make us stop sinning if we just try hard enough? We know the law now, right? We've seen the demands of God. Can it make us stop sinning? The answer is unequivocally no. But what, what then can the law deliver, if you will? The law can deliver the bold and harsh truth that its demands are holy. And even on your best day, even the holiest person you can think of on this earth, it's still 100% unattainable for them and you. It does deliver that. Yes, in that sense, the law can deliver a reality check that can slap us in the face. Moreover, the law delivers knowledge of the holiness of God, God's character and nature, while at the same time, the inability of you and I to keep up with it. So the law can deliver. It's just not the news that it's delivering to us. Then the key here as we proceed in the study is the law makes us aware of our deficiencies, which if we remain in them, makes us morally unacceptable. It makes us unclean before God. What is this likened to then? Being aware that that's what the law does. I'll give you two quick illustrations. Imagine a musician, whether playing a rhythm instrument, like drums, percussion, or playing a melody instrument, trumpet, sax, horn, etc. In the beginning stages, the student can play and practice that instrument, and to their immature ear, it may seem that everything is going well. They're playing right. It seems right to their ear. But what happens when the concept of a metronome is introduced? As the student practices very quickly, he realizes, I'm off beat. I thought I was doing fine. I'm off beat. Similarly, imagine a husband and a wife who are putting up a nice picture frame or a piece of nice art in the living room. As they do so, one of them thinks that it is now straight, while the other one thinks that it is not. How can they rid themselves of any doubt? You can go grab a level, put it on the surface of the, of the frame. The level will reveal who was right and who was wrong. Maybe both were wrong. In those two illustrations then, the studying musician, for example, did the metronome destroy his or her rhythm? No. The metronome is barely showing them, you're way off. You have a long way to go. In the case of the couple putting up the picture frame, did putting a level on the surface of the frame Cause the placing to be wrong. No, it was already wrong to begin with. 
Mind you, some, music some musicians have said, and I've heard it myself, say, actually, turn the metronome off. It's, it's not keeping up, <laughs> right? And mind you, maybe some spouses, some wives have also said, ah, we don't need the level, I'm right. My friends, such is the law of God, but to an infinitely greater degree. The law of God is the ultimate standard of morality by which the scriptures declare all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you put that moral level, when you put that moral metronome to the beat of your life, you realize that you are off. The Ten Commandments, God's moral law, shows us how messed up we are, how dead we are in our sins and trespasses. Are we tracking here as to what is the law delivering to us? This is crucial to understanding Romans and Romans 7 specifically. So with this in mind, then what is Paul Main's point in this passage of Scripture? We're going to focus only in three verses, 13 through 15, and we'll go through the next verses next time. Paul is telling us here, the law is good. It is good. And it exposes the lifelong battle of the Christian against sin. So let us dig right in. First, we're going to see that the law is good, whereas it is sin that brings death, not law. It is sin. This is Paul's first teaching and admission in this first verse 13. It reads as follows. The first half of verse 13 reads, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. So here Paul has just finished telling us that it is sin that deceives and that God's law is good. Let us recap verses 11 through 12, which were covered last week by Brother James. It says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul here continues then his teaching with the diatribe, the Socratic method, so to speak. He's answering questions that he knows are coming up. And that question is there. Verse 13. Right then, is that which is good, meaning the law, did that bring death to me? To which Paul answers, no. God forbid, no. It was sin that produced death. This is why Paul already mentioned that it was sin that deceived. It was sin that ensnares. It's a deception that comes through sin. In other words, when a criminal is found guilty in the court of law, it was not the law itself that brought the sentence. But rather, it was his transgression of that law that brought the way, the consequence of him breaking the law. If there were no consequences for breaking a good law, then the law wouldn't be good at all. More so with the ultimate lawgiver. 
violating, breaking his law has consequence. And as Paul has already told us, the wages of sin is death because it is a good law. If God's law was not a good law, there would be no consequence to it. God's law then is holy and righteous and good. As Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Law of the Lord is good. Let us go back now to verse 13 and read it in, in its entirety. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Then he says, In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So it is not the standard that is bad then, right? Just as in the two illustrations we gave, the metronome exposes the musician's bad timing. The level on the picture frame exposes the lopsidedness. So then it is not the law. It is not what is the standard that is bad. It is not the law of God that causes you to sin. It is sin that produces that death, the consequence of the sin. The law only exposes it. That's God's standard of perfection. So then what is the reason that verse 13 gives? So that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the law should show us how horrendous sin is. God's perfect standard should make us see the seriousness of that sin. As Paul puts it, that it is sinful beyond measure. Beyond measure there, the meaning in the Greek, it's to show to an extraordinary degree. Like you don't realize how messy it is. You don't realize how horrendous it is. That's what the law exposes. So then the law shows the seriousness of sin. It is a guide, a tutor, as Galatians 3 tells us. It leads us to see the wretchedness of sin and of ourselves so that it can lead us to say, I cannot do it. This is impossible. This is, I'm dead. And then you can hear the words of the Savior saying, I came for you. I came for those who are sick, for those who think that are fine. So that it could lead us to the need for a savior. The realization that we need a savior. Secondly, what is spiritually good opposes the flesh. Something that is spiritually good will necessarily oppose the things of the flesh. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So now, knowing that the law is good, as you saw, it says that the law is spiritual. The Ten Commandments, in other words, are not tangible. They are rather imperatives. They are commands. 
They are the spiritual standard that reveals the character of God. God is spirit, and those that worship him should worship him in spirit and in truth. That which is spiritually good, God, his law, his character, will be opposed to the things of the flesh. Paul here acknowledges that, that there is a remnant of sin. That is this sense of residual sin that he is still very aware of. Now, this brings us to a controversy about Romans 7. Because some have said, wait, Paul is spiritual. How can he say that he is of the flesh? Isn't Paul a new creation? Haven't all things now become new? I mean, Paul wrote that, right? So what's the deal? What's going on here? It is this verse in the surrounding context that have led some to conjecture that Paul is taking a first-person description only as an example, role-playing, if you will, of someone who is not a Christian, of an unregenerate person. And in that sense, they say, Paul is saying, I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. So what is this verse and what is Romans 7 talking about then? Is it talking about a believer and the struggle that Paul is seeing in himself? Or is Paul giving the example as a first person narrative about an unbeliever? Well, we're going to settle that central debate right now. Just kidding. <laughs> I have been wrong in the past. I could be wrong today. But if I thought I was wrong, I wouldn't be teaching this, right? So here we go. I will offer what I'm convinced that my study has revealed, which has included not only the studying of the text, but also leaning on commentaries of great saints of the past, such as John Gill and some saints of the present, such as John MacArthur on this issue. Therefore, I will provide three reasons why I think that Paul is describing the daily war zone that a Christian goes through. The war zone that is the Christian life. That Paul is living in his own body. Three reasons why I think this is Paul talking as a believer in the first person. First, Paul refuses to use I in a vague form. Paul is very precise when he uses the term I over 40 times in Romans chapter 7, he's very clear when he refers to him, to himself, as a previous nature, as an unregenerate person. And he's very clear when he, refers, when he refers to himself in the present tense as a Christian, as being sanctified, but yet, yet struggling with sin. I've said it before that vagueness in all matters, but specifically in theology, vagueness begets error, begets heresy. Paul is not vague. For instance, in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, he reads, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's an example of how Paul is very clear when he refers to himself 
as something that he was in the past. Past tense. Paul is not confused. The passage we're seeing now, Paul is referring to himself in the present. He is struggling with sin. So Paul is now vague. Secondly, Romans 7 declares the ongoing battle with sin. I suggest to you that you cannot search scripture to find an unregenerate person acknowledging that there is a battle with sin. An unregenerate heart is not aware of spiritual things, let alone that there is a war going on in the spiritual realm. Paul acknowledges this. Ephesians 6.10 reads as follows. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul knows there is a war going on. Does an unregenerate person acknowledge that there's a war going on? Obviously no. Thirdly, an unregenerate person does not acknowledge the law of God at all because it is spiritual. They understand spiritual things. We already saw that in point number two. But if an unregenerate person is aware of the law of God, it could even be a religious person who is unregenerate. They cannot submit to it by faith and they are attempting to fulfill it by works or they flat out are living a double life. Just playing a show. An unregenerate person does not, cannot acknowledge the things of God, let alone submit to God's law by faith. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. You should memorize this verse so that you're not discouraged when you witness to someone and they tell you that you're crazy and you should go pound sand. Read this. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I remember dear J. Vernon McGee one time in the radio. I was listening to him. I said, you believer, I was on my way to work. And he was preaching the gospel at the end of his message. And he said, my friend, if what I'm saying to you is foolishness, I'm not surprised. That is what the Bible says you're going to think of it. He said, but if what I'm saying is something that you understand, oh, my friend, God is doing a work in you. Isn't that great? And how did that understanding come to a person? By the preaching of the word. So don't be discouraged if somebody does not understand the spiritual things. Be encouraged. That's what the Bible says will happen. And yet, if they are called, how will they find out? By the preaching of the word, by the sharing of the gospel. It is not your doing. It is God's doing. An unregenerate person does not acknowledge those things. And Paul, in this narrative in chapter 7 of Romans, does acknowledge that then this is a straightforward description of the life of a believer, the battle with sin. 
Let's go back to Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul is not declaring that he's unspiritual, but rather because he can understand spiritual things. He realizes that the life of a Christian is a daily battle with sin. He knows he's fleshly and that he has residual sin. Now remember, not that one is under the dominion of the mastery of sin. We saw that already. Chapter 7, chapter 6, right? We are no longer slaves of sin. But it does creep in. And at times, the Christian who has been bought, who has been adopted, can easily forget. And when he hears the voice of that evil, tyrant, master, sin... We have sometimes the knee-jerk response to say, yes, master. Well, well, I can't do that. I'm not living under sin anymore. Paul declares that the law of God is good and that he delights in it. He understands spiritual things. Can an unregenerate person make the same claim? Paul declares he hates evil. Can an unregenerate person say that? So then... What Paul says is that he is carnal and sold under sin. When he says that, he is declaring that in his flesh, his members can betray him. There is residual sin that creeps back. The old man that wants to wake up, you've got to smash it, go back down. There is that residual sin that can be activated when a temptation presents itself. It is the battle with sin. Paul is not a friend of sin, but an enemy of sin and hates sin. A pastor that I often listen to, he preaches in the Dominican Republic in Spanish. Sujel Michelin, excellent expositor of God's word from a reformed perspective. He quotes the following in this regard to this pastor. He says, there is a difference between fighting a war and being captured as a prisoner of war versus you voluntarily joining the enemy to fight against your people. See that? There's a difference. You've captured, you've been trapped, you sur you've been surrounded and snared by the enemy versus you say, hey, you know what? I'm friends now, let's go and let's fight against my people. There's a difference. In like manner, then, Paul acknowledges the goodness of God's law. And yet, that he is not exempt from being trapped by fleshly desires. That is very different than loving sin and being okay with staying in sin. Or living a lifestyle where sin is the norm and not the exception to your lifestyle. Today in Sunday school, we heard the phrase that Luther used, simultaneously justified and sinner. This is a Christian battle with sin. This has to do with our identity. We are saints. If you have been born again, if you are understanding what I'm telling you, you are a child of God. And yet, 
My brothers and sisters, you know there's that battle going on. You know there's that war zone raging on. Due to the corruption of this body, of this flesh, that presents itself with opportunities for sin, and it entraps us. Are you aware of that battle? Is Paul alone here? Oh, I've been in this battle. As a matter of this week, I was in this battle. And if you are a child of God, so were you. Thirdly, we're going to go back to the question of the sermon title, Can the Law Deliver? Romans 7, 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody feels this way? In this verse, my brothers and sisters, we see some good news, we see some bad news, and then we see some more good news. Track with me. The good news is that Paul understands spiritual things. He gets it. If you are regenerate, you too understand spiritual things. Think of how listening to scripture, listening to someone quoting scripture to you, speaking to your life, how it makes sense, how, how it clicks. And it changes your mind, it changes your heart. It directs you back to God, to his word, to his goodness. It changes your attitude. It convicts you of sin. It draws you to repentance. My brother, my sister, you are spiritually alive. Praise God. Imagine listening to those things and nothing making sense to you. There are people out there today who are in despair and these things make no sense to them. May God have mercy on them. If you understand this, you are spiritual life and you are in that war zone and you feel it. You know it. That's good news. Now there's some bad news. While we are in this flesh, there is some bad news. Paul says, I don't get it. I don't understand my actions. What is that? He says, although I know the law, I know it is good. I cannot understand how is it then that I keep falling, that I keep sinning, that I cannot keep the law of God, that he is prone to do what he hates, that is, to sin. Again, I ask you, is Paul alone here? Hello? I'm in. That's me. I'm... I'm with Paul. I've been thinking to myself, when was the last time that I realized that I'd fallen in sin again and I felt defeated? Why do I do it? I don't get it. It makes no sense. And I've been reminded this week, I'm on the same team as Paul is. That is a temporarily bad news. In this body, residual sin remains. The question is, are you aware of it? And are you fighting against it? Right? Good news, bad news now. Good news. Back to good news. Paul here is building the climax of this passage leading up to verse 24 in the first half of 25 in which he states the following. 
Paul says, building up. We still have a little bit to get there, but I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives you the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes? You can't win that battle. Oh, you tried, I tried. Can't do it. And Paul realizes, I'm just a scumbag. Can't do it. And then the good news. He says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He will deliver me from this body of death. The glorious news that Paul is saying here is not, well, brothers, sisters, well, just try harder. Come on, you got it in you. Come on, do it. It is not that. The great news is that Paul is not saying just endure your pain, endure your suffering, endure your despair, and just try to do better. Things will get better. Now, as a matter of fact, Paul is saying, probably get worse. Okay? However, the awesome news that Paul is saying in acknowledging his inability to measure up to God's standard is this. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ has won the battle that we are fighting every day. You may lose a daily battle. You may lose a weekly battle. A month worse battle. Perhaps a year, two years you've been losing. But remember, the war, the ultimate war has been won by King Jesus. He has defeated the enemy of death. He has defeated the lies of the enemy. That is a great news. So what can we say then, as we looked at these three verses this morning? First, let us be reminded, the problem is not the law. The problem is not what God has said. The problem is not God's character. My brother, my sister, the problem is you being entangled with sin. And the key that we see here in this passage, which we'll talk more about next week, is that Paul owns his sin Paul acknowledges his struggle, his war. Let us be careful, my brothers and sisters, not to say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm in the situation I am, but if you would only know what uh, those other people have done to me, then you would understand. Nope. Paul is saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Paul is saying, the problem is with me. Not with the law of God, not with anybody else. The, the problem is with me. Secondly, my brother, my sister, are you the man? Are you the woman in Romans 7? Are you in a war with sin? Do you hate sin as your enemy? Or have you voluntarily walked into the enemy's camp and become part of them? Are you friendly with sin? Are you comfortable with sin? May we realize that if you are born again, if you are a child of God, you are the person being described in Romans chapter 7, in which you may feel so much discouragement, 
You're not alone, my brothers and sisters. You're not alone. Thirdly, there's some great encouragement. Great encouragement. God has provided the way of escape, both from ultimate judgment, but also in our everyday temptations. How so? God has provided the ultimate escape from judgment in the gospel, in the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The escape from judgment has been done by what Jesus did for us. But also, there's an escape from our daily temptations. There's tools at our disposal that we can use to battle everyday sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Way of escape. See that? Let me make a quick note here. This verse is often used to say God cannot give you more than you can handle. That is not what this verse is saying. This verse is talking specifically about your temptations, about the way that your wicked heart deceives you into thinking that you're going to be fine if I'm at this place. I'm going to be fine if I spend time with such person. I'm going to be okay if I go before someone who I'm really upset at right now. And you end up falling each time. God provides a way of escape when those temptations come. Here, it is talking about temptations. Do you think your temptations are unique? Do you think nobody else is struggling with what you're struggling? Wrong. It could be me, struggling with the same things you are. Look around your brothers and sisters, they're struggling with the same thing you are. Literally, countless, countless brothers and sisters going through the same phase of sanctification. And when those temptations come, know that you have the ability to turn sin down. You have been bought by a new master who knows you by name, who calls you to repentance, who calls you to take the route of escape when a temptation comes your way. You have, if you will, the spiritual currency to turn sin down. But even when you have that at your disposal, isn't it true that we still fall into sin? That's the whole point that we've been talking about, right? Remember, when that happens, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's where Paul is going as he's building his climax in chapter 7. And he opens up verse 1 of chapter 8 with the following words. What does Paul say in chapter 8? He says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See that? He's building up to that. You struggle with sin? Yeah, you're in, you're in company. 
Are you a child of God? Paul says there is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. No matter how you may look down upon yourself, no matter how others may look down on you, if you are a child of God, he tells you, you are my child. And there is no amount of accusations in the tribunal court of God of your Abba Father for which he will call you guilty of. None. Zero. That has been paid for by King Jesus. It's a done deal. Now, after realizing that, yes, we are bad and sinful beyond measure, we are wretched, who will rescue us from this body of death? Let us remember the words of Paul. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, where the law cannot deliver us, other than deliver us a verdict of guilty, it cannot deliver us, but rather it shows us that we're condemned. Let us remember, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ that he delivered us from condemnation and he will deliver us when we come face to face with him of this body, of this members, of this heart of corruption due to the sin that is residual in our mortal bodies. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, knowing that we struggle with sin, knowing that no good dwells in our flesh, let us be reminded of the great words of Luther. That we are simultaneously, at the same time, sinners and saints. Meaning, our identity is as a child of God, as a saint that was bought by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And yet, that while we remain in this body, there will be a war raging every day. Thanks be to God that we have the spiritual resources by the power of the Holy Spirit to fight that battle. Thank you, Lord. And we pray for anyone that does not have those resources available, that they will repent and trust in Christ this very day so that they too would be adopted into the family of the Almighty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.